Welcome to Inspired, a production of Interfaith Voices. I'm Umbreen Khan. We explore the beliefs shaping our world, and let's be clear, that means better understanding what people believe and why. Last week, we started a conversation with Eastern Illinois University professor Ryan Burge about the role of religious identity on attitudes about gun ownership and regulation. Burge argues that the general public demand for common-sense gun legislation, like universal background checks, is not translating into policy change, in part because a key constituency, white evangelicals, view the issue as a critical part of their religious identity. Politics becomes the thing that guides all those choices. And in politics, guns is a first order issue if you're a Republican, right? You are pro-Second Amendment. You are anti-restrictions in any way. So unfortunately, you don't get theological nuance when you have a political monoculture because no one speaks up and gives the other side because they're afraid of being shouted down or ostracized. There's not a clear directive in the scriptures that say how a Christian, an evangelical, should think about the issue of guns and gun regulation. So that's an issue where the church can talk about how the scriptures talk about these issues and really debate and go back and forth. But Birch says that the debate is not happening, in part because the issue is so polarizing, but also because the leadership of white evangelical churches has changed dramatically in recent decades. We used to be very top-down, very establishment-driven, and now we're little d-democratic-driven, which means you're elevating people who have many times no training, no background, no education in the things they're talking about, but because they're good speakers and they're compelling speakers, that drives people to those churches. Those are the megachurches in my community, the largest church, now has 1,700 people in a community of 15,000. I mean, think about it. Nearly 15% of my community goes to one church now. The pastor of that church probably has more influence in my community than any other person in my entire community, including the mayor of the city council, right? This person also did not even go to Bible college. So, I mean, it's just showing you like how much power these people get and they get it entirely organically. And I think that's changing the structure of how we think about communication in America and power in America and how we guide people's thoughts and actions in America. Burge argues that these forces, along with the polarization, can explain why white evangelical pastors are increasingly staying out of politics, unwilling to challenge political priorities. I think pastors are incredibly apolitical now because they don't see any value in being political. Because let's say I'm a pastor in an evangelical church and I say, maybe we should think about red flag laws, which are not that controversial, by the way, or universal background checks, which 90 percent of Americans are in favor of. I say that from the pulpit. I'm going to make about 5% of my congregation really, really mad, but that 5% is going to be really, really loud and might be on the board and could fire me. So they're sort of being left to be discipled by partisan voices, not religious voices anymore. How did this moment arrive? It's a question historian Kristen Comes-Dumé set out to answer. In the introduction to Jesus and John Wayne, Dumé explains how the embrace of Donald Trump by white evangelical leaders pushed her to find answers. I spoke to her from her home in Grand Rapids, Michigan. Is gun ownership in America like a religion? I think for some people, 
gun ownership has become like a religion because it's tied to a deeper value system. It's it's tied to their identity of who they are as Americans, uh, their identity of um, what they are entitled to, their rights. But it goes deeper than that. This isn't just a Second Amendment issue. This, this really goes back to power in terms of having access to violent tools in order to defend oneself, to defend one's family, and to defend one's beliefs. And, and so gun ownership is rooted in this idea of embattlement, that there are forces out there that are a threat to what is good and to what is true. And those forces are not just external in terms of America's enemies, but many of those threats are internal as well. And so we need guns to defend ourselves and to defend what is good and true. What are those internal forces that you're referring to? Within white evangelicalism, uh, if you go back historically over the last half century or so, uh, we we have this kind of culture wars mentality that has developed. And so to be a conservative evangelical isn't just to hold to particular theological positions, things like biblical inerrancy and uh, distinct gender roles and patriarchy and things like that. Uh, but it is also to have been shaped by a kind of us versus them culture. The idea that conservative evangelicals are a faithful remnant in many ways, that going back to the 1960s, a lot of Americans kind of went adrift. You had the feminist movement, a threat to traditional family values. You had the anti-war movement. So that was a threat to American strength and American power. And uh, for Southern evangelicals in particular, the civil rights movement was also disruptive of the status quo and of, of uh, white uh, political and social power. You're talking and about all- like desegregation. Um, exactly. of public schools in the 1970s. Exactly. Yes, desegregation was a very um, mobilizing issue for many conservative evangelicals, particularly in the South. And uh, the racial order was tied to their understanding of God's social order. And the answer to all of these disruptions really was the assertion of of white masculine authority and and bringing order to disorder. And what was critical to that was strength, was power, was aggression when necessary. And so this is where the idea of the good guy with the gun comes. And, and if you look at some of their cultural heroes, in my book, it's titled Jesus and John Wayne because of the way that John Wayne is held up as an ideal of Christian manhood uh, because he is the good guy with the gun. He will bring order through violence. And there's this idea that particularly with the rise of feminism and the anti-war movement, this, this heroic ideal had been lost. And when it was lost, that imperiled the nation and the church because we needed strong men who were not afraid to do what needed to be done. As you describe John Wayne as this idealized good guy, keeping us safe, he's the big hero, but he's not the only protector in this narrative. Can you explain uh, references to sheep or sheepdog theology? 
I believe that is shorthand, and it's a reference to stories from the Old Testament. But I don't totally follow, especially because my understanding is that there's a lot of negativity associated with sheep. So you don't want to be a sheep. And this is not just in kind of con- conservative religious spaces, but conservative spaces more broadly. It's it's kind of it's a term of disparagement. Uh, you're just a follower. You're weak. Um, you're you're not equipped to lead. The sheepdog is something different. That is the dog with sharp teeth that will uh, use its viciousness to counter the viciousness of the wolves in order to protect the flock, in order to protect the vulnerable, usually uh, depicted as women and children in, in these circles. And so there you need, uh, you need to meet aggression with aggression. And that's very consistent with uh, a kind of longstanding posture in conservative evangelical spaces. Preemptive war is a great example of this. When you lift up these threats that are so great out there, whether they be kind of cultural threats domestically or threats in terms of foreign policy, if you take these threats seriously, why would you wait for them to attack you? You need to act preemptively. You need to strike first. Otherwise, you are simply leaving the fold vulnerable Hmm. and it's irresponsible thinking about guns. Are white evangelicals, are they going to be necessary to crafting what is called common sense gun laws? I think so, because they are such an important part of the Republican Party, uh, of the conservative base. And so if you don't have conservative white evangelicals on your side, it will be very difficult to get any sort of bipartisan legislation approved. And that's incredibly difficult because conservative evangelicals are outliers. Uh, When you compare them to any other demographic, they are more likely to own guns. They're more likely to think you can bring guns in more spaces. They're more likely to feel safe around a gun. And they are likely to hold these views on guns as, as tightly connected to their religious faith. So an attack on gun rights is very easily perceived by many as an attack on their religious rights, uh, or at least um, it's not entirely separate. There's a lot of speculation that mass shootings that are particularly horrific are going to change attitudes among those who strongly support gun ownership. I'm curious, based on your research, what do you see happening and what do you anticipate? I have a 2017 survey that has 41% of white evangelicals owning guns, more white evangelicals owning guns than the average American, but most white evangelicals do not own a gun. But then you have these kind of shared ideals, uh, shared commitments. And so even if a white evangelical doesn't own a gun, they are also going to be more likely to support those who do and defend those who do. And this isn't just a purely theological uh, commitment at all. In fact, it runs counter to a lot of um, core teachings of the scriptures, things like uh, love your enemies and turn the other cheek. And, you know, you have the story in the New Testament of Jesus telling his disciple Peter to put his sword away. And so you have a lot of evangelical biblical teachings that should run counter to this 
pro-gun movement. And in fact, you have prominent evangelicals speaking out against gun violence. People like Shane Claiborne, who has for years advocated uh, against gun violence as a white evangelical. But you also have this strong cultural identity that has been cultivated for generations now within white evangelicalism that links guns to responsible Christian manhood. This idea that God ordained men to be protectors, protectors and providers, but to be a protector, you need to be willing to resort to violence when necessary. So if you look at James Dobson um, from Focus on the Family, probably the most prominent evangelical uh, advice giver when it comes to raising children, he's very clear gender difference is absolutely critical and you are messing with God's order, uh, God's design if you if you mess with gender roles. And so men are supposed to be protectors and you have to equip little boys uh, for this. And women, girls are not. They are the vulnerable ones. They are weak. They are to be protected. In your research, you have taken a closer look at these messages to parents. Can you give me some examples? If you look at evangelical advice manuals on raising boys uh, that involves things like, uh, you know, little boys are, of course, even even if, you know, you liberals are trying to prevent it, just watch your little boys going to make a gun out of a piece of bread, out of a stick. You know, you can't stop this. This is by God's design. And so you should give him you should give him BB guns when he's little. And then when he's old enough to handle it, you should you should teach him how to how to use real weapons, a rifle. And some of these books have plans like. Like, like raising a modern day knight is one of them put out by Focus on the Family, and wait, ra- uh, raising a raising a modern day knight, raising a modern day knight. Okay, yes, like, you know the age of chivalry. We need mm. it, uh, and so you need to equip your boys not with swords these days, but firearms. And so maybe the initiation process involves gifting a firearm, uh, right? So this is just part, now not every evangelical family does this, but this is part of what is good and what is right, how boys become men and what it is to be a Christian man. And the idea that God filled men with testosterone, uh, this is again, God's design and testosterone makes men aggressive. But God doesn't make mistakes, so that aggression is good. It just needs to be properly channeled. When we hear that expression, good guy with a gun, uh, who who are we understanding the good guy with the gun to be? Often the good man with a gun is uh, implicitly understood to be a white man, and the threats to the American family are perceived to be uh, non-white men. Uh, so if we look at the 1960s, we see uh, you know, in terms of Black communities seen as a threat, the ghetto and so on, and white families need to protect themselves. This also ties into uh, white evangelical support for um, uh, maintaining segregation in their Christian academies. And really perceiving black men in particular as threats. So white men need guns to defend themselves. You see this in terms of discussions around immigration and the dangers that 
quote unquote, illegal immigrants pose to good American families. And you see that in rhetoric around the threat of Islam, uh, the violent threat that is posed by um, uh, radical Islam, by Muslims who uh, and by terrorists. And you know, somebody like D- James Dobson will present this in the years after 9-11. Muslims are the greatest threat to American families. So fathers, you need to stand up and defend them. Defend your family. But the majority of terror acts in the United States are committed um, by by white men. Are yes. they seen as a threat? Are they seen and understood as an internal threat? Despite the statistics, no, I do not see much discourse at all in evangelical spaces about the threat of uh, white gunmen. Uh, you know, instead, I see a lot of support for somebody like Kyle Rittenhouse. Kyle Rittenhouse is the young man who was recently acquitted after driving from his home in Kenosha, Wisconsin, to a protest where at the age of 18, he used weapons to shoot and kill protesters who were out marching, raising their voices because of George Floyd's murder in Minneapolis. He was acquitted by a jury. How is Kyle Rittenhouse perceived? How was that acquittal received? And how is he seen in white evangelical spaces? Rittenhouse was really perceived in many white evangelical spaces as a a noble kid, Uh, a kid who stepped up when the adults in the room uh, weren't doing what they needed to do. I just want to introduce Kyle by saying this. Your number one goal is to protect your family and to stand strong in the face of opposition from culture and evil. And Kyle Rittenhouse is a man who does that. God bless Kyle For the authoritarians among us, this is a disaster. They can't let it go. Why? Because they understand the Rittenhouse case is a referendum on the most basic right of all, the ancient right of self-defense. If Kyle Rittenhouse can save his own life from the mob, then you can too. And that drives them insane. He was a guy who put himself at risk to protect others. Rather than seeing him as a threat, rather than seeing him as a killer, uh, he was perceived as the good guy with the gun who was coming in to restore order when uh, the, the government was unable or unwilling to do so. Very much seen as somebody who stood between good citizens and the threat of, in this case, Black Lives Matter protesters. After the break, my conversation with Kristen Comas-Dumay shifts from the good guy with the gun narrative to how leaders of this evangelical movement made firearms a symbol of their religious rights. Stay with us. Hi, friends. I hope you're enjoying the show so far. I just want to say thank you. Thank you for listening. Thank you for being part of our community. I don't know if you know this, but we are on the air all the way from Richmond, Virginia to Ketchikan, Alaska, and in so many places in between. 
We're a national show, and we are a small and mighty team committed to bringing you stories and sounds from around the world that convey not only the diversity and the pluralism of our country, but the beliefs that are shaping our world, our politics, our culture, and the ideas that sustain us and inspire us to think about where we are going. And that brings me to this question. If you value us, if you enjoy listening and appreciate what you're hearing, I want to ask you to take a moment to consider becoming a sustaining member of Interfaith Voices or make a one-time donation at interfaithradio.networkforgood.com. That's interfaithradio.networkforgood.com. Thank you. And let's get back to the show. Welcome back to Inspired, a production of Interfaith Voices. I'm your host, Umbreen Khan. If you're just joining, this week my guest is historian and author of Jesus and John Wayne, Dr. Kristen Comas-Dumay. She teaches history at Calvin University in Grand Rapids, Michigan. Now, before the break, she outlined how the cultural narrative of the good guy with the gun became infused in the popular culture consumed by white evangelicals. Dumay describes how the ideas about guns became associated with raising strong men, preparing boys to become protectors of faith and family. Key to this movement is the role of pop culture in evangelicalism. And according to Dumay, one of the biggest influencers is Dr. James Dobson. He's the founder of Focus on the Family, based in Colorado Springs, Colorado, a media mogul whose empire includes publications, films, books, and, most well-known perhaps, a syndicated radio program that reaches millions daily. Dobson is not a theologian, but a child psychologist with a clear political agenda. The organization Focus on the Family has been involved in advancing and supporting public policy and state legislatures for the last 25 years. Let's get back to our conversation. James Dobson and Focus on the Family is, first and foremost, a faith-based organization. It's not, per se, a church. Dobson himself is almost as influential, or if not more influential, as a religious leader, theologically interpreting scripture in the times that we live in and providing guidance. Is that an accurate way to describe who he has become over the last 30 years? Yes. And and you really need to understand the broader trends within evangelicalism in the last half century or so, which is uh, a real emphasis on Christian living. So what does it mean to live faithfully? And that's where you'll get all kinds of advice on how to raise kids, how to be a good wife, how to be a good dad, 
uh, how to vote, <laughs> all sorts of things. And much of this, I mean, some of this is coming directly from pastors uh, in pulpits, but a lot of it is just through the Christian subculture, through Christian radio, through Christian music, and through this enormous Christian publishing industry. And what they found uh, decades ago was that if you're trying to sell theological treatises, you have a pretty small market niche there, particularly when you get to denominational divisions and Methodists don't like the Baptist theology and vice versa. But if you talk about things like how to be a good wife, you have a, a huge market right there. And so a lot of what evangelicals are reading, are hearing uh, day in, day out, a lot of evangelicals listen to Christian radio for several hours every single day. They're getting religious content that is not deeply theological, but it is faith-based. And that religious content is going to teach them what they should think about how to raise your kids, about what it means to be a good person, a good American. And you can see these cultural and political values really shaping what it means to be an evangelical. And this is coming through the popular culture, but then also through their pastors who end up being deeply influenced by this popular culture as well. And so when you look at somebody like James Dobson, he's a fascinating figure because he first presented himself when he started Focus on the Family Radio as not political. Even though when you look at his teachings, he was very concerned with authority and propping up parental authority and disciplining children. And he was concerned about these things because he didn't like the hippies. He didn't like what was happening in the 1960s. So as Dobson emerges, he starts off as this apolitical and as but the messaging and the platforms and the issues that he is prioritizing and lifting up are part of a larger political agenda. Yes, but because he's presenting himself as apolitical, he's drawing in millions of listeners, often uh, conservative evangelical women who are stay-at-home moms and have the radio on all day. And, And he develops this really strong sense of loyalty. And evangelical women turn to him for parenting advice, for background noise, and uh, increasingly really see him as a religious leader, and not just women, but evangelical men as well. And so years ago, I I, uh, had heard there was a survey in my own Christian denomination about who was the most important theologian. And that survey turned up James Dobson Mm. as the number one theologian. Now, he is not part of my particular denomination, nor, of course, is he a theologian. But that just shows how he came to stand in for theologians as a religious leader. And his uh, teachings were, yes, he would talk about the Bible, but it was very much about how to live this family values evangelicalism, and then increasingly he became overtly political, telling Christians how they should vote. And how do guns fit into this? So guns are are just part of the broader kind of worldview and uh, religious understanding that white evangelicals have, that you need to protect your rights 
and uh, you know their constitutional rights. And this is the probably this along with freedom of religion, uh, those chief rights that they need to protect, and uh, and really protect their uh, their identity and their security, their security to live their lives as they see fit, and not to be threatened by big government. Right, that's where the Second Amendment comes in, uh, but also you know not to be um, placed in danger without defense against all of these domestic threats. When you talk about the domestic threats that you also earlier talked about that those domestic threats are are not simply kind of stranger violence, but threats from trends and forces like yes. you have more immigrants in America or you have uh, more non-Christians living in America or a yes. majority of Americans are no longer identifying as religious. Are those cultural trends also seen as internal threats in this construct of vulnerability? Absolutely. Absolutely. We are in the midst of a a real demographic shift in this country, which Robert Jones has termed the end of white Christian America. That sounds scary if you think that God destined America to be a special Christian nation. So one of my favorite things to do is to walk through a Hobby Lobby store. And Hobby Lobby is uh, owned by prominent evangelicals, uh, the Green family who are politically active. But I like to just see what's on their shelves. And uh, in in their kind of decor section, they will have fake guns that you can put on your wall, revolvers, rifles, um, bullet drawer pulls, and they'll have plaques celebrating the Second Amendment, plaques saying, you know, if you don't stand behind the military, go ahead and get in front of them, you know, so insinuating uh, uh, gun violence right there. And and just kind of really held up as this is what it means to be a good American, but this is what it means to be a proper Christian as well. So there's this internal culture, but I also want to note that evangelicals also drink deeply from a more secular conservatism, right? So many evangelicals aren't just tuned into evangelical media, to Christian radio and uh, and Christian publishing, but they're also watching Fox News. That has become, for many evangelicals, kind of the, the reliable news mm-hmm. source. Mm-hmm. And so anything you're seeing on Fox News is also going to deeply shape the evangelical consciousness. And it's able to do so so effectively because it does align so tightly with many of their own values. Is this thinking that you're describing distinctly American? And by that, I want to know, there are Christian majorities in other countries. Um, Do they share this view of guns? Or is there a different idea and relationship to gun ownership? This is distinctly American, although perhaps not exclusively American. And so if you look at global evangelicalism or global Christian communities, you will see a lot of of Christians the world over looking at American Christians right now and saying, what on earth are you doing? And I think especially around this question of of guns, because America really is an outlier in terms of our gun rights, the number of firearms, and certainly the death 
deaths uh, um, from firearms. And so if you look at you know, uh, Christians in Australia, for example, they are right now talking to American Christians saying, you know, there's another way here. You know, uh, there's another way to go about this. We once had gun violence too, and here's what we did. We we took away the guns and it worked. Uh, but that, that really doesn't get through to many Americans. Uh, on the other hand, you'll have, if you look at, at places like Brazil, uh, that's where you'll see some more connections mm-hmm. between the kind of militancy that evangelicals embrace here and the the posture of many Brazilian evangelicals under Bolsonaro as well. And so, so there's a variety of responses, but certainly American Christians are outliers as Americans are more generally when it comes to gun rights and intolerance uh, uh, for gun violence. What do you think needs to happen to get Christians who believe they have a religious right and reason to own a gun? What is going to have to happen to get them into a conversation to talk about what advocates describe as common sense gun laws? It's going to take other Christians. It's going to take other Christians to speak powerfully and consistently into these spaces. And these are Christians who are already in those spaces, right? Because you do have religious resources on which to draw. The problem is you can quote all kinds of Bible verses. And even when you're talking to self-professed Bible-believing Christians, you know, who swear that they take the inerrancy of the scriptures incredibly seriously, uh, that they hold to the inerrancy of the scriptures, those Bible verses just aren't going to get through. You know, I've read, I've read accounts where uh, in, in evangelical books saying you can't teach a boy to become a man by teaching him to turn the other cheek. Like that passage of the scripture doesn't apply to us now because the threat is so great. So we're going to tell you what to do instead, right? You're explicitly rejecting scriptural teachings. Uh, but it is going to take, if, if this can be changed, and that's, that's a huge question. I'm, I'm frankly not that optimistic, but it's going to take a lot of people in these communities who have doubts, who have been sitting by quietly for a long time to start disrupting to start saying, you know, maybe not, or are you sure about that? And to work within their own communities, because if outsiders come in, that only reinforces this value system. This is exactly how this works, right? We knew you guys are out to get us. Of course, you're going to want to disarm us. Of course, you're going to want to come for our guns. Kristen Comas-Dumay is a New York Times bestselling author. She's a professor of history and gender studies at Calvin University. She holds a Ph.D. from the University of Notre Dame, and her research focuses on the intersection of gender, religion, and politics. Her most recent book is Jesus and John Wayne, How White Evangelicals Corrupted a Faith and Fractured a Nation. Links to her book can be found on this week's show notes. You're listening to Inspired, a production of Interfaith Voices. When we come back, my conversation with Michael Austin, a Christian ethicist who talks about and wrestles with a question. Can Christians own a firearm? Welcome back. If you're just joining, this week on Inspired by Interfaith Voices, we're talking about God and guns. We now turn from politics to philosophy and theology. 
My next guest is Michael Austin, a professor of philosophy at Eastern Kentucky University, and he's the author of God, Guns, and America. It's published by Christian publishing house Erdman's. And when you read it, you can hear that he's not speaking to just anyone. He's trying to reach evangelicals and invite them to wrestle with questions about what a Christian's relationship to guns should look like. It's not an unfamiliar issue, and it's deeply personal. Austin was gifted his first gun before he was born, and he sees the country and his faith at a crossroads. After traveling and speaking to pastors, church and ministry leaders, academics and denominational executives around the country, he thought he understood the debate and the difficulty. But that changed when his brother, an ordained pastor, shared a product that crystallized the degree and magnitude of the struggle. Inside a black leather zippered case embossed with Holy Bible in gold, Bible in fact, but a pistol holder. On the right, a place for a gun. On the left, an elastic band to hold cartridges. Austin writes that seeing that challenged him to not only talk about the philosophical and theological, but also the industry that is marketing products for those wanting to conceal and carry undetected in church or anywhere else. Let's get to the conversation. You're a philosopher, you're an ethicist. The question that you wrestle with in your book, can a Christian own a gun? Should a Christian own a gun? Why those questions and what did you find in that journey? Yeah, it was difficult because there's, for one thing, there's of course a lot of violence in the the Bible. But for me, it was interesting. I've always sort of been a just war, justified violence person. So the idea then for me, it was always like, look, if you're going to be a pacifist, what do you do about Hitler? in terms of international warfare. Or if you're going to be a pacifist in your personal life, what about the sort of classic case somebody breaks into your house or is harming your a family member or you? And then I would think, well, violence is justified in those cases. But as I started reading through the texts of, of Scripture and New Testament and Hebrew Bible scholars, just the weight of the burden, I felt much greater if you're going to say violence is justified. Really? So in the process of writing this book, you found yourself moving back towards that approach or that view of violence? Yeah, I found the pacifist view a lot more plausible, both from a, just a like a religious or theological perspective, and then even just my own moral one. For me, those two go together. I found myself really challenged by, not just by the words of Jesus, but other parts in the New Testament, even some stuff in the Old Testament, um, which we tend to think more of as, as pro-violence in a way. You know, it says God hates violence. You know, David's not allowed into the temple because he was a warrior that shed blood. So there is this thread throughout the whole Bible. I thought about it more deeply and more than just a caricature. And so can a Christian own a gun? The answer would be yes. But I think it's a tough decision because I think if you're going to own a gun for any purpose, but including self-defense, you've got to get a lot of training, safety, how to use it, take classes. But As a friend of mine took the class in self-defense, how to use a firearm, and he was told the first time that you shouldn't have a gun for self-defense in your home or take one out of your house with you unless you've decided in your mind that you will use it to kill somebody if the situation arises. Because if you go into a situation and you hesitate or you're not sure, instructor told him basically you've introduced more danger to yourself and others by having the firearm than you would otherwise. And I don't think a lot of Christians think about that enough. In the book, what I try to push a lot is that that's a deeply moral, ethical, and for Christians, 
religious question. You have to like reason through and think through. And if you have a religious faith, pray through, get advice about, not just, well, I want to protect my family. I'm going to carry a gun. Because I think it's not a flippant decision to be made like that. And at least from a Christian perspective, the fact that all human beings are made in God's image, they all have intrinsic worth and dignity. The decision that you make to end the life of somebody, to take the life of somebody, even the criminal, right? They still have that same basic worth. That's a momentous decision. And then, How does someone say, I want to ensure there are no legal rights to abort a life, but I want the right to abort a life if I feel threatened? Yeah. Reconcile that for me. The only way you can reconcile that, or at least possibly can, is that in the abortion case, so if someone who's pro-life thinks that you know, the fetus is fully human, has full rights as you or I have, then their right to life is being violated. But when somebody, for example, breaks into my house and feel like a child or my wife or a friend's life is in danger, that person, while they have a right to life, they've forfeited it by infringing upon my or my loved one's right to life. So morally speaking, that would be the difference between the two cases. But where I would say there's hypocrisy or inconsistency is to say, we're going to use the law to restrict abortion rights, but I don't want any laws restricting my rights to guns, even if it's going to save innocent lives. It's that, no, we need to have the status quo with guns when there are things that we can do demonstrably to reduce gun violence while protecting those gun ownership rights. That's what's inconsistent to me, because in one case, you're willing to restrict someone's choices in terms of the abortion case, but you don't want your own restricted at all. How do you see getting Christian gun owners and users to do what you're describing, to wrestle with the philosophical theological questions that you lift up in your book? Yeah. Yeah, that's a hard thing. I guess what I try to do is challenge Christians to think by your belief system, that that criminal, uh, the person you're afraid of, whoever it is, they have, they have the same worth in God's eyes, exact same worth as you do. And so their life's not worth any less than yours or mine. And we have to wrestle with that and get them to think about that. And I think if you can find common ground and then build from there, right? So that we're all made in God's image, um, that, that the status quo is not acceptable, right? There are things we can do to reduce gun violence while protecting the rights of responsible gun owners. I've had some conversations with people where it doesn't go anywhere, but I've had some with others even recently and they, yeah, they were thoughtful. So, but it's part of a larger problem in Christianity in America. And I guess I would say, especially some branches of evangelical Christianity, there's still an anti-intellectualism and a sort of proof texting of the Bible, baptizing cliches and slogans. And so trying to just ask questions, be curious. Do you feel that where we are culturally in the society today, do you see a place where these kinds of conversations and where there can be, you know, and I'm going to use the expression common sense gun laws? Yeah. Yeah. I think that even in these last two weeks, you know, it's the same pattern same sort of conversation and people staking out their ground back and forth. I've seen the NRA and others talk about Second Amendment rights are absolute, but that's just that's just false, right? The Supreme Court decisions from 2008 and 2010 about that said that like most of our rights, there are limits. And usually those limits have to do with harm to other people. You can still have a strong Second Amendment right, but there can be things we can do that won't infringe on that right, but also could reduce gun violence, right? We're still going to have gun violence, but we can have less. Uh, I think that's the realistic goal. Yeah, there is a message out there that it's not guns that kill people. It's people who kill people. 
And I was reading recently, someone said, wait a minute, that's oversimplification and inaccurate. It's both guns in the hands of people. Yeah, of course, guns don't kill people by themselves, but they make it a lot easier to kill people and a lot more people in a shorter period of time. From a Christian perspective, given views about human nature, why give somebody that power, especially if there are good reasons to think they'll misuse it? And I wonder when you think about um, this idea of how the culture of protect your family and protect your faith and defend, it is incredibly adversarial. It is uh, almost a, a militancy and a predisposition to not seeing a world in which bridges can be built, mm-hmm. where threats are everywhere. Yeah. I think we see that in a lot of different things, right? Whether it, you know, before the shootings the past couple of weeks, a lot of the conversation was about, at least in some religious circles in the U.S., was about public school and critical race theory and sort of there's always like this sort of us versus them thing. I guess I worry about that not just in, well, it just seems to be worse in the past four or five years in general in the United States, the us versus them. The you know, it's almost a cliche now to talk about our society being polarized, but from what what I've seen that there's good evidence that it is right. People actually tend to be more uniformly conservative on all their views, more uniformly progressive or liberal. Um, There aren't a lot of sort of variations. And so being a really strong second amendment rights person is part of being conservative, being against it as part of being liberal or progressive. And then, yeah, just that picture of us versus them of the good guys versus the bad guys. And I feel like a lot of the rhetoric and a lot of what's happened, especially with, for example, the NRA again, is that fear, you know. And in fact, most people who buy guns for that sort of self-protection that are marketed to are middle class and up, rural, you know, not urban, white, fairly affluent. They're the ones that are least likely to be the target of violence. And so that's an interesting feature of the whole thing as well. You just described a scenario of a person feeling displaced, insecure, uncertain, almost primed to be afraid. Mm -hmm. If we hold that Christian beliefs are part and parcel of this idea of being able to bear arms, I am curious how that tradition, how the theology that has evolved to make meaning in this day, how that's being applied to the reality you just described. Yeah, and I think this is one where it's just the case when I talked to like philosophers, Christian ethicists, others from other countries. I remember having a, a conversation with somebody from the United Kingdom a couple of years ago, uh, Australia. They look in from the outside from their sort of Christian commitments and just think, well, I, they don't get it. And I think that this is one of those cases of the a certain kind of American exceptionalism that in some ways is co-opted, you know, maybe a Bible verse here or there, or just somehow... <laughs> This, this notion of, of guns and arm yourself has become part of what it means to be a Christian in America. When you take that into consideration and you hear that, as a Christian ethicist, what does that raise for you? But yeah, I, th- I guess that just bothers me because it's a politicization of a, a term that was supposed to mark out you know, faith commitments. Basically, political beliefs are upstream, so to speak, from theological and religious ones. But, you know, it's supposed to be the other way around for people of faith, right? Our faith is supposed to, it's supposed to challenge us. It's supposed to 
um, dictate in a certain sense, or at least shape how we view politics. Politics shouldn't be shaping our view of faith, right? It should be the other way around. But I think that's just not the case. And I mean, that's part of what I'm trying to do in the book and other people that I'm, that I'm working with on some of these issues is, is trying to call people who do have that faith commitment to say, look, think about this more deeply. Go back to our tradition, to, to the Bible, to the scriptures. How can we reconcile these things? Can we? And some things we can, some things we can't. And, and just getting people to do that. And I think it has to be done in community more than just as individuals. Where, where are the moderates and what are they doing? Yeah, I think some... I think it's difficult even to be a moderate as a as a pastor. Explain what you mean when you yeah. say it is difficult to be a moderate pastor. Yeah, on this issue uh, and probably others. But yeah, so I, I had a conversation with one and he brought this guns issue up. He's a pastor in Virginia and just with kind of some of the, the men from his church, the older leadership. It was some kind of men's breakfast and he brought this up and some of them were like, don't do that. We don't want to talk. Like it was safe, like it was just off limits for even the conversation. I think there's that kind of resistance. I've talked to churches who say we don't want to step into this because we don't want to be seen as you know pro gun control or as taking a stand one way or the other on the issue because it's so volatile. Um, look, there are churches where if a pastor came out and brought this up, it would cause a lot of friction. And depending on you know the setup and how decisions are made, his or her job could be at risk. Do you think that these mass shootings taking place in spaces like churches and grocery stores and public schools is going to shift the conversation in Christian circles? Yeah, I want to say yes. Um, I guess sometimes the loudest voices are the ones that are more in Christian circles, like one end or the other, and that's not necessarily bad, but often like in the more sort of white evangelical spaces, this sort of the pro gun thing is just sort of taken as a given for, for many people. So I'm hopeful that it can some, but you know, sometimes you just think, well, if, if Sandy Hook didn't do it, why will, you know, Uvalde or Tulsa or Ames, but it does, I don't know. I'm hopeful that there is a change, you know, David Hogg, he was one of the students at Parkland survived that and then has, been involved in the gun or sort of movement to reduce gun violence. So I've seen him say online, this is different. He's had people contacting him. He feels like it's different. He's in the midst of activism with this stuff. So I think it's possible. I think what needs to happen, but the hard thing is that the house passed a few years ago, right? A, a bill about universal background checks and you know, my state's own Senator McConnell just won't even let it be debated, much less voted on, uh, brought to vote on the Senate floor. So that's, that's a barrier, but I hope that, I sense increasing momentum. I just hope we don't get distracted by the next big thing that happens. Dr. Michael Austin is a professor of philosophy at Eastern Kentucky University and a senior fellow at the Dietrich Bonhoeffer Institute in Washington, D.C. Austin is the author of several titles, his most recent, God, Guns, and America was released by Erdman's in May of 2020. That's all for this week's show. If you missed any part, you can stream it online at interfaithradio.org. 
While you're there, you can also learn about us, read the show notes, sign up for our newsletter, and explore the archives. You can find our podcast on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or really the podcaster of your choice. Just search Interfaith Voices. And while you're there, help us out. Leave a rating and a review. It helps others find us. A special thanks to MC Yogi for our theme music, additional music by Blue Dot Sessions, and a special thanks to our founder, Maureen Fiedler. This week's episode was produced by Kevin McCarthy and Kimberly Winston. Inspired is a production of Interfaith Voices. We're a nonprofit and we rely on the generous support of our listeners to bring you this show. I'm your host and executive producer, Umbreen Khan. Remember to stay safe, stay well, and stay connected. I'll see you next week. <laughs>